You can have a seat. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Good morning. Everybody doing good? Good. Well, we're glad that you're here with us. Um, I'm excited to be back from a time of vacation and family trips. Now, there's a difference. Um, if you don't get anything else from today, this is a little bit of a practical help, okay? There is a difference, parents, married couples, between vacation and family trips. See, vacation is what Jessica and I go and do together, right? And family trips are what we do with our kids. There are moments where it feels like vacation, but the reality is it's not. And so, um, so we just begin to like use the, that vocabulary for us, and it helps us fix our expectations, right? Because if you go on a family trip expecting it to be a vacation, you often leave disappointed, right? Uh, right, parents? Yes. And, uh, but if we reframe it, right, it helps us. And so we're glad to be back from even a family trip. And uh, thankful for the time away. Thankful for the messages that Brandon and John and Drew brought through the book of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Can we put our hands together? We're thankful for faithful pastors who can uh, preach and do a good job. And thankful for them. Thankful for Brandon and the time he put in. Thankful for John and Drew. Today, we're in 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, I'd encourage you to turn on or turn to 1 Peter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does." The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Jesus, we thank you for how it points us to your perfect life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to receive all that it is that you have for us. Strengthen us by your grace to apply the truths that we see in this text today. We ask you in Jesus' name. And everybody said? I want you to imagine with me this morning that that door right there, everybody look right back there at that door, Miss Carol's right back there, but I want you to look at the door just to the left of her, and I want you to imagine for just a moment this morning that Jesus walked through that door. And Jesus was invited to preach the sermon today. How many of you would be stoked for that? It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? You'd be like, great, we wouldn't have to listen to you, right? And, uh, and we had this microphone, and we just handed it to him. And we said, we're here to learn from you today. How amazing would that be? How fantastic would that be? And as Jesus took the stage, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment, and he said this, hey, people, this morning, I want you to mark your calendar. I want you to mark your calendar And 365 days from today, I'm going to come back and the world is going to end. 365 days from today, 8,760 hours from today on July the 30th, 2024, I'm going to come back. What do you think you would do? Now, for some of you who maybe grew up in like different environments, you're like, is Jamie predicting when Jesus is coming back? No. Just writing that down. For those who are watching online, I am not predicting any of that. I'm just trying to help you think through the importance of this text this morning. What do you think you would do? What would change? What would you start doing? What would you stop doing? What would rise to the top of your priority list and what would fall off of your list? Because it just doesn't seem all that important anymore. How would your life change? Inevitably, I think some things would change for us. But I wonder if for some of us, nothing would change. I wonder if some of us would finally begin to go all in in our relationship with Jesus. We would begin to see spending time with Him as of utmost importance. I wonder if some of us, those conflicts that we're in with family members, maybe even our spouse or our children would begin to not seem all that important and we would lean in to see those relationships become vitalized and to be healthy and whole. I I wonder if we would begin to reconcile broken relationships and begin to take steps towards freedom from sin and we would begin to share our faith with more intensity. Because we heard from Jesus 
that 365 days from today he was going to come back. I wonder if our life would change. You see, if you look at the way that most of us live, we believe that Jesus is coming back, but just not today. Our someday in our mind overrides the importance of today. Jesus is coming back someday, but, you know, this week I'm doing this, this week I'm doing that, next month I'm doing this, you know, two months from now we got this work trip. You see how we live? James even talks about this. Towards the end of his book, he said that many of us live as though we make all the plans and call all the shots for our lives. And the result of that is we don't live with a sense of urgency. We live with the assumption that we have more time. We have no clue when Jesus is coming back. And the reality is, is even if I got up here and said, this is the day that Jesus is coming back, you shouldn't listen to me. You shouldn't listen to anybody who says that because the scriptures are clear that says no man knows the hour or the day. We can begin to look at the seasons and we can begin to look at the circumstances of what scripture does talk about and how the age will come to an end and begin to get a sense of there are things that are happening in our world, but the reality is, is none of us can read all the tea leaves and put all the picture together to understand when Jesus is coming back. And this is why 1 Peter 4 is so important because Peter's message to us and to its original audience is this, live like the end is near. And the way that he frames all of this is in this idea of stewardship. He says there is a way in which you can steward your life to where you live like the end is near. And I think this is really, really important, especially after we've walked through 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John and looked at what it looks like to to walk in the truth and to walk in love and to walk in the ways that he has called us to. To walk in truth. You see, Peter has something to say about this as well because he speaks about all the themes that we've looked at over the month of July. And he's saying, if you are going to walk in these ways, you must steward the grace that I've given you. So if you wanted to write down a title for today, it's this, Stewards of Grace. And our big idea is this, Stewards of Grace Live with the end in mind. If Jesus were to come back 365 days from today, how is it that we can steward grace and live with the end in mind? Peter is very practical. If there was ever a message where you're like, man, Jamie wasn't really super all on this end of theological, it is very theological, but he was on the end of very applicational and practical, it's today's message. Because Peter is that way. You see, this group of people that he's writing to are suffering persecution. 
They need theological truths, but they need practical rubber meets the road steps for how they can steward grace. And I think if we're honest, so do you and I. I think most of us associate stewardship with just money and possessions, and the reality is God owns it all, and everything is stewardship. So the question then is, have you ever thought about to yourself what it means to steward grace, and how do we actually do it? I think our text shows us exactly what this looks like. Look at verse 1 and 2. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself. If you like to write in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline that phrase. If you don't like to write in your Bible, that's okay. Write it down on your notes app or highlight it in your version app. Arm yourself. Everybody say arm yourself. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. He goes on to say, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He uses these two phrases, arm yourself with the same way of thinking, and also living for the will of God. So our first thing you can write down this morning for how we can steward grace and live with the end in mind, is by treasuring God's will above everything. Treasuring God's will above everything. Now he's writing, Peter is writing to a bunch of Christians who have been canceled in their culture. They've been canceled because they don't do what other people do. They don't go and do what they're doing or say what they're saying. In fact, we'll get into this a little bit more as we dig into the text because they're under Roman occupation, under oppression, and this group of people literally stand out from everyone else because of their actions. Peter is saying, look guys, Jesus is your example. That's what he's saying. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. You see, when Jesus Christ stepped into the earth, what was he bent on? If you think about what his mission statement was for his life, we see this very clear in the Gospels when Jesus says, My will was to do the one from the Father who sent me. In other words, I didn't come on my own seek and destroy mission or my seek and save mission. I came on a mission that was given to me by my Father in heaven. And so every day, Jesus got up and said, what is your will for my life? And he set his gaze, he set his posture, he set his action, he set his intent towards fulfilling God's will for his own life. The Father's will for his life. In Luke 2, 22, verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He says this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is under anguish and distress and feeling the weight of your and my sin and the sin of all the world on his shoulders, 
and he's about to be crucified for our sin. And even in that moment, rather than saying, God, I don't really want to do this and leaving it there, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What's Jesus showing us? He's showing us what it looks like to treasure God's will above our own. And so Peter, under the face of opposition, tells the Christians to do the exact same thing. And so I'm not up here saying anything new or unique. I'm saying exactly what Peter said to that group of people, to you today. If you want to know what it means to steward grace, it means to treasure God's will. Stewarding grace means treasuring God's will. So the question then was, what was the Father's will? Well, as Isaiah 53 tells us, it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. That was the will of the Father. Why was that will so important? Because you and I could not save ourselves. The humanity who God created in His own image, in His own likeness, with love and grace. He breathed life into us. And we turned our backs on Him. We began to live our own way, our own life, our own will. And in response, rather than leaving us to our own will and our own devices, Jesus came to live the life we could not live and to pay the debt we could not pay. Isaiah 53 tells us that the will of God was to crush the Son and for Jesus to lay down His life for us. And by doing this, He's accomplishing the will of the Father. It came through suffering. This group that Peter writes to is suffering. And so he says, arm yourself. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. In other words, it takes intentional thought to not live your own way, but to arm yourself with this sacrificial servant life that Jesus lived for us. You see, the wording that he uses, arm yourself, is a military term. He's saying, hey, every day go into battle. Pick up your your weapons, and your weapons aren't guns and swords and knives and spears and bows and arrows or tanks or airplanes. But the arming that you need is with this perspective that Jesus had of living to treasure the will of Him who sent Him. Every day, we have to draw a line in the sand and say, I have to think differently about today. So the question is, how do we practically do this? I want to give you some handles, a really practical way to apply this particular idea of treasuring God's will by using the words that Jesus says. Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. Everybody say, not my will, but your will be done. So here's what this practically looks like. You say, how do I treasure Christ daily? Treasuring Christ means thinking like Jesus and laying your life down daily. 
some scriptures I want to give you to write down. Write these down and go read them this week. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, and Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'd encourage you to memorize those. Memorize them. First person to memorize it, come up to me next Sunday. I'll have a Starbucks gift card for you, okay? I want to incentivize you to arm yourself with this way of thinking. Galatians 5.24, Romans 12.1 and 2. You see, we treasure God's will by thinking like Jesus and laying our lives down. So you say, okay, you said you were going to be practical. How do I do this? Simply wake up every day and say, God, today, not my will, but your will. God, today, not my will, but your will. By actively engaging in prayer and with your words, you will begin to speak out loud and say, hey, God, not my will, but your will be done today. I think so many of us, we think, okay, well, what about this week or what about this month? But it starts with the daily intention to say, not my will, but your will be done. Why is it that Jesus got up every day, spent alone, time alone with the Father? Because he knows that the world we live in has a way of shaping us and pointing us towards our will and not the will of the Father. It has a way of shaping our to-do list. It has a way of shaping our wish list. It has a way of shaping our perspectives. And the way that we move from that worldly perspective towards stewarding the grace is by saying, God, not my will today, but your will be done. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the first step for any Christian who is seeking spiritual power is to accept his unique position as a son of heaven temporarily detained on earth and to begin to live as he has become a saint. So how do we live as though we've become saints? How do we live as detainees in a foreign land? We say, not my will, but your will be done. We begin to treasure God's will above everything. You say, well, I've been walking with God for a long time. Are there more like varsity applications to this text for me treasuring God's will? Nope. Nope. We never mature past where Jesus was. And Jesus every day said, not my will, but your will be done. He came to fulfill the will of him who sent him. Not his own plan. Not his own to-do list. Not his own hit list. But the will of him who sent him. So stewards of grace live with the end of mind by treasuring God's will. We treasure God's will. Number two, we endure opposition. We endure opposition. Now verse 4 through 6 give us all kinds of things that the Gentiles and the culture in which this group of Christians were living in. It was full of partying and drinking and sexual impurity and idolatry. We have this list. So much so that that Peter gives this group of people this phrase, this flood of debauchery. I think it's intentional 
because he likens what's happening in their culture to what happened prior to God flooding the entire earth. This is just my conjecture on the text. But it was interesting to me that he used the the phrase like he did, the flood of debauchery. There was a time in which the world had gotten to a place where it was so wicked, so evil, that God chose to judge the earth through a flood. He saved only Noah and his family. And in the same way that that family was set apart and were seen as foolish and were seen as crazy and weird and strange for building a boat, my family and I went and saw the ark experience uh, a week ago, or almost two weeks ago now, and to see the sure size of that and to think about the fact that it had not rained. And I was like, now I can understand why people thought he was crazy right? The feats of engineering that it would take and the fact that it was somewhere between 75 and 100 years to build this thing and to be working on, hey, what's that? It's a boat. What's a boat? Right? Why would we need a boat? Because it's going to rain. What's that? Right? And the result was they did not believe in God and there was debauchery everywhere. And so Peter uses the same phrase and he's saying, just like Noah was seen as peculiar and strange and weird, so are you seen that way when you choose to endure opposition, not give in to it. You see, when you begin to treasure God's will, people won't understand. They won't understand that you won't watch certain things. They won't understand that you won't listen to certain things. They won't understand why you won't go certain places or participate in certain activities. They just won't understand. In fact, it becomes peculiar and strange when you do participate in all those things and also say that you're a Christian. They're like, why would you do that? Why would you be a hypocrite? So here's the thing, either way, you give in or you don't give in, you look weird. So you might as well endure opposition by treasuring God's will for your life, to live holy and pleasing and acceptable to God, which Paul says is reasonable. It's the most reasonable thing we could do in light of the mercies of God, that we would present our bodies as living sacrifices. It's, it's strange to people when we will endure opposition and we'll be accountable to other people. It, it's strange to people who don't know Jesus and, and don't walk with Jesus that you would get help for your addiction. For some of you men and maybe even some women who are addicted to pornography, it's, it's strange and weird to a world outside here that you would actually be accountable to someone else and ask someone to ask you, are you walking with Jesus and are you putting to death your sin? It's weird. And yet Peter says, this is what it means to live with the end in mind and to steward grace is to endure that opposition. Peter is saying, endure opposition by knowing you will be misunderstood. You see, historically during this time, there was a a Roman historian and politician named Tacitus. 
And Tacitus had this theory about Christians that he wrote about. He described Christians as having a hatred for the human race. You say, why would he say that? That's mean. Well, according to Tacitus, Christians were not doing what the rest of humanity was doing. That was his reasoning. He was saying that this this group of people called Christians are bad for the human race because they're not doing what everybody else is doing. You say, what was everybody else doing? Everybody else was worshiping the emperor as God. And Christians refused to. Everyone else was partying and drinking and engaging in sensuality and idolatry, and Christians were not. You see, Christians were not doing what the rest of humanity was doing. They were defying the emperor. And the truth was that revering the emperor as a deity at festivals was commonplace. So when the Christians would not do that, Tacitus looked at them and said, you have a hatred for the world. Does this sound familiar to the world that we're walking in today? You won't see human sexuality and relationships and marriage the way that everybody else does. You must be a hate group. Does this sound familiar? You won't have the perspective about drinking and sex and everything else the way that we do, so you must hate the human race. Sounds exactly like the context in which Peter is writing to this church. And he's saying, if you want to steward grace and live with the end in mind, you have to endure opposition. Don't give in to opposition. And when you know that you'll be misunderstood, you live with a resolve that God is with you. Peter is also saying that you can endure opposition when you remember you will give an account. Look at what he says in verse 5 and 6. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter phrases it this way to remind us that there is coming a day. It may be 365 days from today. It might be six years. It might be 60 years from today. But the reality is, is every single one of us who call ourselves human beings will one day stand before God and give an account. And our account will either be cleared because we are under the blood covenant that God fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus and he has washed away all of our sins, or we stand there trying to give an account for our own good deeds or misdeeds. And the reality is, is only those who stand covered in the blood of Jesus and what he has done for us will be allowed in. So Peter reminds them of that day, the day, the day that is on the infinite eternal clock that none of us know when the time will run out and will God will bring us before himself in his presence to give an account. We don't know when that clock is going to run out, but there is a day. 
Paul calls it the day. The apostles call it the day. Peter calls it the day. All throughout the New Testament, everything is pointing towards this day, this crescendo moment where God brings all of his people together to worship him for all of eternity. And so Peter is saying, you can endure when you remember that there's an account to be given. That there's a day. You see, short-term gratification will one day lead to an eternal shame and regret. So it's not worth it. So stay strong. Endure opposition. When people don't understand why you do the things that you do, explain it to them. You say, they're going to think I'm weird. They think you are anyway. You see, when heaven is waiting, life on earth is a taste of hell. But when hell is waiting, life on earth is a taste of heaven. As believers, we can endure a taste of hell knowing that we will feast for all of eternity on the beauty and the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. So practically, how do we apply this? Endure. This is why it's really important that you're here. This is why it's really important that you're in a small group. This is why it's really important that you have people who are walking alongside you to disciple you. This is why it's really, really important for you to be accountable to someone. This is why it's really important to sing. It's really important to live the 5% life. To spend time with God daily. To spend time weekly in worship. To spend time monthly in small groups to spend time annually living on mission. This is how we apply this particular thing because this is how you endure. It's, it's like working out, right? Time under tension, right? Time under tension. That's how you grow strength. How do we grow in stewarding grace, in enduring opposition? Time under tension. Walk with Jesus. Spend time with his people. Worship him. Live on mission. Get up tomorrow, do the same thing. Get up tomorrow, do the same thing. Then you look at the end of your life and you see all the impact that he uses you to produce in the lives of others. So the way that we endure opposition is by living the life that he's called us to. A life of holiness. Lastly, So stewards of grace live with the end in mind by treasuring God's will, by enduring opposition. And then verse 7 through 11, we don't have time to dig into all of it, but it means this. It means praying, loving, and serving with all you have. Praying, loving, and serving with all that you have. Look at what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I thought that was a curious phrase. Because there is a life in which we can live where we live assuming that God hears our prayers. The Scriptures tells us that we can live in such a way that God will not hear our prayers. This is sober thinking. This isn't like entry-level, God is great, God is good. God, we thank you for this food. Nothing wrong with that. I like that prayer. It's a good one. 
especially when you're ready to eat. Can I get an amen, parents? You ask our kids, some of our kids to pray, and you're like, oh, we're not asking that one, right? Maybe ask the one that can pray the short prayer, especially when it's time to eat, right? But there's some of us, when we think about this, sobering. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter's point is sober up. See the reality. The end is near. Jesus is coming back. He will come back. And because He will come back, live with clarity. Clear thinking, clear hearts, clear minds. So as we wrap up this morning, I want us to think practically about these three things. Praying, loving, and serving. We don't have time to dig into all the text. There's lots here. Tons. We could preach a whole month on this this 11 verses that we've dug into. Maybe we will at some point. But Peter's point is, he wants us to think practically about prayer, love, and serving. So I want to give you some questions to write down. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was coming back 365 days from today, what would you pray? Write it down. Who would you pray for? How would it change what you ask for? These are some questions I want you to wrestle with this week. What would you pray for? And I want to challenge you this week, start praying. You say, I... I, I don't really pray a whole lot. Maybe it's like pray for my food or pray for my kids before they go to bed, but man, I'm really busy. Could you imagine if Jesus was coming back 365 days from today, how that would change your prayers? Write down what you would pray for and just start praying for it. Just start praying for that person that you don't believe could ever come to faith. Just start praying for that friend that you want to see healed. Start praying for that person that you want to see giving their lives to him. Pray for that marriage that you want to see restored. Pray for that family member who maybe harmed you or hurt you that you need to grant forgiveness to. Think about it. It's totally worth it because of God's grace. Peter is saying, arm yourself with this way of thinking. Pray this way. Act this way. Think this way. And it's got some practical implications. Because the prayers that you would pray if you understood that Jesus was coming back would be different. So write them down and start praying. Peter then says in this text, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Keep loving one another earnestly. Say, what does that mean? It means love each other earnestly, deeply, practically. So write down this question. Who do I need to love? Who do I need to love? And how could I take a practical step to love them this week? Maybe it's loving your kids in a specific way. Maybe it's showing love towards your spouse and living with them in an understanding way, husbands, and serving them instead of serving yourself. Maybe it's loving your neighbor. You notice that they hadn't weeded it in like three weeks. Get your weeder out, especially today since it's a little cooler, and go weed eat their yard. And don't even ask them. 
unless they're kind of that person, right? They might call the police on you. Then you might go over and knock on the door and say, hey, God asked me to love you today. I'm going I'm to weed eat. What do you think about that? Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's sharing a word of encouragement with someone today before you leave. How is God asking you to love each other earnestly? I want to encourage you to take a practical step this week. And then lastly, he says, serve. He gives this whole list of gifts, which I do think are really, really important. But I think what Peter's intent here is, regardless of what your abilities are, use them. Use them. That there's not a single person who has been created by God, saved by God, who has not been gifted. He's given us all a gift. The question is whether or not we're being good stewards or unwise stewards with them. So here's the question under serve. God has given you a stewardship and a gift and a responsibility to identify your gifts. So here's the question, what are my gifts? You say, I don't know. Well, it's an opportunity to ask someone to spend some time with you to help you discover that. We have a process in our church called Pathways. And in August, we'll have a Pathways class. That's an opportunity for you to take a spiritual gifts test, to work with a group of people to help discover your gifts and to begin to use those. So the question is, what are my gifts? And then the second question under serve is this, how could I use them to build up God's church? That's the point of these. The point of these gifts is that the church would be built up and that God would be glorified. You see, stewards of God's grace live with the end in mind because they know that God's glory is most important. You say, where do you get that? Look at verse, the end of verse 11, and we'll wrap up. He says, in order. So the purpose, the purpose of everything that I've said to you up to this point is that in everything, God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, each of you have a responsibility to steward grace because God's glory is at stake. And whether or not you do it or not, he has it. So go ahead and participate. God's glory is at stake by you treasuring God's will, enduring opposition, praying, loving, and serving. This is the way of grace, and this is the means of grace for us to bring glory to God. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that if you'll do this, God will get glory, and he's already got all he can handle. You just get to join in. Because glory and dominion belong to him. Would you stand with us this morning as we pray?